There are many different telescope types out there, with each design having its own strengths and weaknesses. And there are new designs coming along all the time. With so many telescopes out there, why should you choose one over the other? The search for the perfect telescope on this episode of Space Junk Podcast. Welcome to Space Junk Podcast with Tony Darnell and Dustin Gibson. Hey everybody, welcome back. A little bit later on, I'm going to be talking with Dustin about the Astro Camera Resolution Wars. I didn't know this was a thing, but it actually is. So we're going to talk a little bit about what resolution means in a camera and whether or not you need more of it. But before I do that... What I want to talk about to you with you today comes from a listener. Yes, a listener. You guys, Matt in particular, emailed me. And he said, before I started listening to you guys, I only knew of three types of optical telescopes and didn't even know enough to know that there were others. I actually teach a high school astronomy course, but backyard telescopes are a huge blind spot for me. It's great at least learning what it is I need to look for in order to provide comprehensive lessons to my kids, but I would like more info on why somebody would choose a Dobsonian over a Schmidt-Cassegrain or vice versa or all the other telescope types out there. Well, that is a big topic. So I can't do that in the question segment, but I will do it here, hopefully, in the time that I usually allot myself in this segment of the podcast. So let's go ahead and get started. There are lots of scopes out there, lots of different types. And each one, as as we've pointed out many times, they each have their own strengths and weaknesses. But most of the designs that we see out there are born out of necessity. Someone needed a lot of aperture at low cost, for example, or they needed to be able to build it themselves easily. Uh, But some of the early telescopes were simple just by virtue of having limited knowledge of the optics involved. I mean, Hans Lippershe, you may not know this, but Hans Lippershe invented the telescope, not Galileo. Galileo used his telescope. But Hans Lippershe didn't know all that much about focusing light, but he knew that if you if you played with two lenses in such a way, you could get a you could get an image out of it that was a little bit better and bigger than what you could get with your eye. So he built Galileo's telescope, mostly because that's what he knew. But then, you know, a little bit later on, people got better at building telescopes. And in particular, William Herschel uh, built some really great scopes in the 18th century that were simple optically. They were just Newtonians, uh, but they were also of pretty high quality. So most optical designs are designed to either correct for a certain aberration or to do a specific job. Uh, like looking at the sun, for example, or the moon or the planets or distant galaxies. All of these have slightly different optical requirements. And so all these telescopes were born out of all of these different uh, needs and capabilities. And, you know, there's no, there's no hiding the fact that some of these people built scopes just because they could, (laughs) but most telescopes were born out of necessity. And every design lended itself to certain things quite well and other things, not so much. So, the lesson here, and what you're going to hate to hear, is especially if you're beginning in this in this hobby, is that there is no one-size-fits-all telescope. There just isn't. There isn't one telescope that you can buy that will be good at doing everything. 
you're going, there's some that come close, but not all of them do everything. So you got to make choices. And that's kind of what I'm going to try and set the foundation for. I'm going to talk to you about what the different kind of scopes are and why you might want to get it, you know, or why you wouldn't want to get it. But let's start with this. All telescopes, I don't care what kind it is, they all have to do the same basic two things. They have to gather light and they have to focus light on an image plane. That's it. That's all telescopes do. And what you do with that light after it gets focused is up to you. You can put an eyepiece there and look at it with your eyeball, or you can put a camera there and take a picture of the image plane. But those are what you do with it after it's been focused is where a lot of other complications come in in the hobby. But all telescopes do those two things. They gather light and they focus it. Um, in fact, cameras uh, are, you know, the cameras that you buy in a store, the SLR, or even the cameras in your phone, all of them have a little telescope on the end of it too. Even your phone does. Uh, it has a little refractor on the end of it. Uh, it doesn't collect a lot of light, but it does focus it down so that you can take a picture of the image plane that it does produce. So cameras are a very specialized kind of telescope. So you guys already know that there are basically two different types of telescopes. There are refractors. These have pieces of glass in them, and they have the, then those old refract reflectors that use mirrors to do those two things, gather light and focus it. So let's start with refractors. There's, there's a lot out there that you can get, but most of them are getting to be of the same type now that are available commercially. But they use lens elements to gather the light and the folk and to focus it. And they're broken up into many different kinds of designs. There are doublets that have two lenses on. There are triplets that have three of them put together. And this all refers to the number of elements of glass that are in the front objective. That thing that sits out in the front of the telescope tube. Doublets have two, triplets have three. And all refractors take the light that comes into that into that tube and they bend it. It's called refraction. It's the name refractor. And it's identical to a glass prism, just like on the cover of The Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. All refractor telescopes work like that. And the, re the, the one of the biggest problems with refractors is that they do act like a prism because all of the different colors that go into from a star through your objective lens, they get bent and they are focused at different at different distances from the objective lens. And those are, that's a real problem. That's the biggest problem with refractors. It's called color correction. You need to be able to have a telescope focus all of those colors in the same spot. If you just have one element like Galileo had, um, then you're going to be seeing all these, all the stars at the end are going to look like little tiny prisms, little tiny rainbows everywhere. The objective element isn't focusing all of the colors from the star in the same spot. So you see little rainbows. That's called chromatic aberration and you need to get rid of it if you want a usable refractor so we need to correct for that and as i said this is caused by the wavelengths different wavelengths of light coming in and being focused at different distances different spots in the image plane so red might be focused but green won't be or blue won't be and then they put different lenses in stacked one after the other so that the light can you know correct and, and bend and and focus at the same spot. 
So there's many different, there's a couple of kind of refractors you need to know about. One of them is called an achromatic refractor, and they focus just two, two wavelengths of light at the same distance. They're usually the red and the blue. They try to take red, one element will focus red light, another element will focus blue. These tend to be doublets. They have two lenses put together to do this. An apochromatic refractor, this is what you see most of. This is, this is what radian cells, this is what a lot of, uh, uh, all the high-end refractors are, are these types. They're apochromatic refractors. They focus three wavelengths in the same spot, red, green, and blue. So you don't get color problems on, on these really high-end refra uh, refractors. So each one of these use multiple glass elements in the objective, and they're all mounted together in a metal collar that's at the end of the tube. And each surface, the, both the front and the back of each of those little lenses, in some cases they're big lenses, they're coated with an, a very expensive anti-reflection coating. So all of this put together makes refractors very expensive. They also tend to have longer focal lengths, right? So refractors are generally used by imagers. Why would you want to pick one of these? Well, like I said, you want to take good pictures. You don't care so much about aperture. You don't need a big lens. You just need one big enough, usually three or four inches, that lets you collect enough light to take really decent pictures without all the stuff that comes in with a refract with a reflector. So these tend to be a favorite these days of imagers. Apro uh, apochromatic refractors. Dustin and I just did a segment on this a couple episodes ago. Okay, so those are refractors. Why you would need one? Mostly for imaging. Uh, they they tend to have that now. They're making them with shorter focal lengths because the wavelengths of light don't focus at the same distance. It used to be very hard to make a short focal length refractor. Uh, to get, you know, to bend that light even more so that, that it doesn't take up as, you don't need as long of a tube. Uh, but they've gotten better at this. So a lot of these short focal length wide field refractors are on the market now. Uh, they're just very, very expensive. So let's move on to refract reflectors. These telescopes only use mirrors to gather light and reflect it to the point. They don't suffer from the color problems that refractors do, but they have a lot of other issues. For example, a simple spherical mirror can't bring all of the light from a distant object to a common focus since the reflection of the light rays striking the mirror near the edge of it don't converge with those that reflect near the center of the mirror. And that's something called spherical aberration, and it is the bane of reflectors. Now, to avoid this problem, most reflecting telescopes use a parabolic or a more complicated shaped mirror. They're not just spheres. Uh, a shape, and, that, and that's a shape that can focus all of the light, regardless of where it's reflected off of, down to a point. Parabolic reflectors are, are uh, where some of the first Newtonian telescopes, that's what Herschel built, for example. So they tend to, they tend, so just making, a, the reason people like spherical mirrors is because they're easy to make. If you just take a mirror and start grinding it, the shape you're end up, you're going to end up with because you're grinding more of the center than you are the edges, you're going to end up with a spherical shape. So they're easy to make, um, but they don't focus all of the light at the same spot uh, if, depending on where it is in the mirror. So spherical aberration is a problem. Uh, a lot of reflectors also uh, suffer from coma. This is where if you look at the stars, uh, uh, no matter how in focus you think you are, all of the stars look like little comets. 
Um, there's also field curvature because the image plane itself isn't perfectly flat. And of course, they can have astigmatism, which, where the stars at the edge of the field look a little bit elongated. So these are all of the problems that mirror telescopes can have. Uh, by and large, though, a lot of the commercial scopes, you don't have to worry about this stuff. They've gotten rid of a lot of this. Uh, uh, you don't see coma very much and certainly not astigmatism. So um, that comes, so the mirror, so the mirrors that are, that are being produced now and the designs that are produced now are actually pretty good. So <clears throat> what are the different types? I'm going to go through now the different types of telescopes. I'm going kind of fast because there's a lot of stuff here that I want to cover, not just for Matt, but also for anybody else who might be thinking about, well, why would I want this telescope? So I'm going to go through some of these designs and I'm going to answer the question, why pick this one? And I'll tell you what it's good for. Okay, let's start with new Newtonians. These are very simple telescopes. You see these all over the place. They have two mirrors. The primary is parabolic and the secondary is flat. Now, this is what William Herschel made back in the day. And it's also what Isaac Newton made. That's why it's called Newtonian, named after Sir Isaac Newton. So, the, and so they have the parabolic primary, which is a little bit tweaky to make, but it reflects off of a flat primary or a flat secondary, which is um, easy peasy to make. So they're, they're simple design. So why would you pick this one? Well, they're cheap. They're really cheap and they're good for beginners. Um, uh, you find them in Dobsonians. Dobsonian telescopes are, al are almost, I can't think of one that isn't. They're all Newtonian telescopes. And so you can get a really, really big, big aperture uh, telescope for relatively cheap. Um, they're also easy to collimate. Collimate means line it up, line up the two mirrors. If you've got a primary mirror doing all the reflecting at the secondary mirror at the other end, you want to line those up so you get a really nice, good good image. Um, they tend to have short focal lengths, which means you get really wide fields of view. You do need to line them up, collimate these periodically. They, they, get out of, they get out of alignment, especially if you travel with it quite a bit. But Dobsonians are an easy first telescope, especially for a classroom, Matt, <laughs> because they're easy to point, they're easy to move around, they're very durable. You really have a hard time hurting a Dobsonian, but it's got a Newtonian reflector sitting in that cradle. Now they are clock, they're not usually clock driven. Usually you push them with your hands, but you can buy them with uh, not only clock drives, but go-to mounts where you can type in things and have it point to specific stuff. So that's why you'd want a Newtonian. Almost all of them are Dobsonians, and they're very cheap and uh, durable. Cassegrains are the next type of reflector telescope. These have a parabolic primary and a hyperbolic secondary mirror. And it puts the image way in the back of the telescope. But actually, it reflects off the primary, goes up to the secondary, and then goes back down through a hole in the mirror in the back. And these are the hyperbolic and the parabolic primaries, the hyperbolic secondary and the parabolic primary are very difficult to make. So these are kind of expensive telescopes. Why would you want to pick one of these? Well, they have long focal lengths because the, the, the light path goes through the entire optical tube twice. And so they're good for high magnification work but they're usually heavy, they're bulky, and they need a really tall mount because you, the hole comes out the bottom of the telescope. So you've got to have it lifted up off the ground so you can see them, so you can see through it. You don't see these a lot, um, just regular Cassegrains, but they are good for 
long focal length high magnification work. Ritchie Chrétien is another one, another type of mirror telescope reflector. It has two hyperbolic surfaces that are designed to eliminate all the off-axis optical errors that I was telling you about before, like coma and astigmatism, all that kind of stuff. Um, RC telescopes are very popular now. They tend to be smaller, but they don't uh, but they don't have to be. You can make them quite large. They're a good wide field telescope, and they're really good for imaging. Um, one of the reasons I like them <laughs> is they are a, a super tested design because professional astronomers use RC telescopes all over the place. For example, the Hubble Space Telescope is a Ritchie Critian telescope. The Keck telescopes on Mauna Kea in Hawaii, both Ritchie Critian. And ESO's very large telescope is also an RC telescope. Now, these are, so they're very good. They don't have, they are, you would pick one of these if you want to be an imager that doesn't have a lot of the off-axis errors that you might get on some of the simpler Newtonians. Then there is the Dahl Kirkham Caxagrain. These are, these are starting to be popular uh, commercially. They have a concave uh, elliptical primary mirror and a convex secondary, spherical secondary. Um, sometimes it has a lens. Now, with, with no, these aren't a lot different from Ritchie Cretian telescopes, but with, they can either have a corrector plate or they won't have one. If they don't have one, people tend to like these better than RCs because they have excellent fields out toward the edges. Okay. Sometimes that's really important if you're imaging. So you'll see a lot of the newer, like there's some Dahl Kirkhams out there now that are, that I think OPT is even selling that um, are being used instead of RCs because they have excellent field of view at toward or excellent fields at the edges of fields of view. Very flat. Okay. And that's important. Now with a corrector, if you have a corrector on it, they're not much different than RCs, uh, but they can be cheaper to make because they are the, the, the curves of the mirrors are easier to manufacture. Now, in the, in the reflector category, that just leaves a bunch of off-axis designs. I'm not going to go into those because you can't really get those in amateur astronomy, but you can get them in professional world. The brand new, just commissioned um, Daniel Lecoye uh, solar uh, telescope in uh, Haleakala on Maui is an off-axis solar telescope, but that's really complicated. You're not going to find those in the amateur world that much. Okay, so let's move to catadioptric telescopes. These are telescopes that have both lenses and mirrors. And we talked a lot about these and Dustin and I did in a couple episodes. So I'm not going to go too far into this other than to say the two main types out there are Schmidt-Cassegrains and Maxutovs. Now, Schmidt-Cassegrains, been around forever. LX200s from Meads, C8s from Celestron, C5s, all of these. They've been the staple, the workhorse of amateur astronomy for, well, since the 80s. And they have spherical primaries that is corrected for spherical aberration using a corrector plate up front. Both mirrors, both the primary and the secondary, are spherical, which makes them really easy to make. Remember I told you that when you just start grinding two pieces of glass together and you do it in the simplest way possible, the shape you're going to end up with is spherical. So they're easy to make. And and uh, But the trick is always been the corrector plate. And what made, what puts Celestron on the map? was the fact that they figured out a cheap way to mass produce that corrector plate, which corrects for spherical aberration. So why pick this one? Well, it is very versatile. 
It's it's relatively small for its aperture. You've seen them. They're, they they fit into a trunk. Uh, they've been around forever. The C8s are iconic. I mean, they've just been around since forever. And with the right accessories, you can do almost everything with these. These are about as close as you're going to get to an all-around, do-everything telescope. But there are a lot of compromises. It's not, it's not both a great wide-field telescope and a great you know, high magnification telescope. There are errors and I, I've, I've had, you know, if you use a telecompressor, for example, you'll get a really curved field. Um, you'll see some aberration off to the, off to the edges with a telecompressor as well, but it does good enough, certainly visually, but with imaging that may not be, it may be a, a bit more of an issue for you. It does need periodic collimation. The mirrors get out of alignment. You got to align those and they could be a real pain in the butt on these Schmidt casses. So, uh, they're very versatile, but be prepared to line them up every, you know, every few uses. And then, but the Maxutov, which is uh, built on a Schmidt camera design, eliminates the need for a collimation, and that's one of the biggest selling points for it. They have spherical mem- they have spherical mirrors with a negative lens up front. You've seen them; they're they're they have that glass sort of concave look to it. Um, and the secondary is silvered on the back of the lens itself, which means you don't have to collimate it. It's once it's lined up at the factory, you're done. And that means that they, that's probably the single biggest reason people pick these is they're compact, they're light, they're easy to carry, and you don't have to collimate them. They make really good spotting scopes. Also, if you look at wildlife with them, they tend to be about four inches in aperture. Um, but they do have a long focal length, so they're not super great for imaging. Um, but you do need, you know, if you put more stuff on the back of the tube, you can, you know, like a telecompressor or whatever, you can do better imaging with them. Um, but, uh, so that's why you would want a Max Futoff. Did that help Matt help you decide why you would want, you're going to have to rewind this because I went through it so fast. Listen to it several times. I went through each one that I thought that you could buy and why, and tried to answer the question why you would want to pick that one. And um, I hope this at least gives you a starting point. There's also personal preferences in here. Some people just like refract- refractors. Some people just like Maxutovs, right? They just like them. They like the way they look. They like the way they feel, the way they can be carried around. Um, refractors have gotten a lot more portable than they used to be. They used to be real long tubes that were very easy to uh, knock out of alignment. Believe it or not, you actually had to collimate old Pentax refractors uh, periodically because they, where they were mounted in the uh, objective mount. So... Um, anyway, that's sort of a overview, a 10,000, <laughs> a 10,000 foot view in about, you know, 20 minutes or so of all the different telescope types and why you might want to use them. So let me know what you think. Got any questions? Space junk podcast at deepastronomy.com or space junk at deepastronomy.com. Thank you guys for emailing me and letting me know what you think. This has been fun. I'm glad you guys are taking advantage of this and uh, give me more ideas. This one was from Matt. Now I don't always do strictly equipment the whole way through. Cause I want to talk about other things too, because not everybody is, is a gearhead, but I realize most of you are right now. So I hope this helps. Thank you guys. And uh, let's go talk to Dustin about CCDs. 
You're listening to Space Junk Podcast with Tony Darnell and Dustin Gibson. Hi, everybody. It's time now for the segment with Dustin where we talk about gear. And this is one of my favorite times to spend with Dustin. I get I get a chance to hang out with him and learn all kinds of new and cool things. Today, we're going to be talking about cameras, one of your favorite topics. And, and I know this because that's also one of the most listened to episodes we've ever done was the camera, uh, the camera guides that we've done in the past. So today we're going to be talking more about cameras, but in specifically, in particular, we're going to discuss resolution and what's happening to these cameras as the hobby matures and as camera technology gets better. Apparently, I did not know this, but there is a war going on with uh, resolution. So, Dustin, welcome to welcome back. It's always good to be talking to you, my friend. Uh, what's going Thank on you. with the yes? So, yeah, yeah uh, this this is that is what's going on. There's a marketing war, and it's being fought with resolution numbers in cameras. You know, you see it on on both sides, consumer cameras. Um, and then obviously astronomy cameras, same thing, because a lot of them share the same sensors. You know, I'm not sure if a lot of the listeners know that or not, but if you look at, for instance, some of the Sony mirrorless cameras, you'll find those same sensors in several of the astronomy cameras that are available. And it's, it's not just those, there are multiple Panasonic and other options as well. But, um, but the marketing battle is really happening on that resolution front. Yeah, I can remember when I started way back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, the very first camera I ever used was a homemade cookbook camera. And it had a 260 pixel by 200 and I think it was 20. That's awesome, though. A homemade camera was your first one for this. That's that's really cool to be able to say. Well, I wouldn't know where to start building a camera. Well, I wouldn't have either, except there was a man named Richard Berry. He's the former editor of Astronomy Magazine, and he published a book called The CCD Cookbook Camera, and it was based on a uh, TI, God, what was the name of the chip now? I can't forget. It was a Texas Instruments chip, and it was very simple, and he even put in a couple of, oh, you know what? I think I even still have the floppy disks handy, uh, the CCD cookbook readout software, uh, complete plan. So I was able to buy the book and the, then I just bought all the components and basically put it together. But yeah, I used so that you for buy a the time. sensor separately yep. and then you, you literally just piece it, what you solder it all together and solder it and together. Then, uh, wow. you had to, had to buy a machine, uh, had a machine, a aluminum housing for it. Uh, just paid somebody to do that. And, was it cooled? uh, it's water cooled. Wow. It was it was water cooled. Had a little little water jacket in the back of it that uh, you could pump antifreeze through with a little. I used still the camera you use today, just ripping off apods with it, right? <laughs> I do mosaics <laughs> with it now. Well, I think the, the pictures were like twenty microns. They were huge, right? It's like so. a four thousand panel mosaic, and it's still only one megapixel. <laughs> yep, that was it, man. That was it. So, and yep, yep. In the field of view, I think I was able to get the entire. A uh, disc of Mars in it. Uh, we're talking. I mean, I use this on an uh, what is it? Uh, an old LX two hundred. What was that? F ten or yeah? Something? That was the scope that dominated the world for a while. The LX two hundred. Yeah, yeah. I had a ten inch for a long, long time, and yeah. and uh, that was my main. That was my main scope. But um, yeah, that's what I used it on. It was crazy. Yeah, but things are not that way now. <laughs> no, things have changed a bit. And now, um, I mean, cameras are so good. We talk about this all the time, but cameras are so good. And so when people, I get messages regularly from people 
just asking, um, hey, I got this camera. Is this a good one? There's never a time that I say no anymore. There used to be. There used to be some ugly CCDs that existed not that long ago, <laughs> where when you get one, you're just like, good luck. Yeah, That is a nasty sensor, and you're going to have some serious calibration work to do. What do you mean? Um, Things like the QE was bad or or what was wrong with them? They were, yeah, they were just like, you know, and, and I'm still, I still use a CCD um, in one of my observatories and it's my favorite camera that I still have. Um, and so it's not that CCDs are bad. There were just some chips that were older. They were long in the tooth, as they say, for the CCDs. And, uh, you know, they just, the, the QE was horrible. It was below like 50%. Um they always That's quantum came. Efficiency, by the way, I just, just yeah, yeah. The quantum efficiency was always so it would it would capture less than half the light that actually hit it. Um, the rest would not be capturable, and then it was. Uh, they always had just tons of defects, like column defects and things, and there was just a lot of calibration to be done. But you know, it's kind of like that's that's what it took to get where we are. And you started with sensors that just slowly got better and better. And then the sensors got bigger and then they started getting less expensive and the technology just boomed. And now people are getting CMOS full frame, 60 megapixel cameras for, you know, $4,000, which would have been, people would have laughed at you, um, you know, 10 years ago, if you'd have said that would ever be a possibility, people would have laughed at you because they're like, no, that's an $80,000 camera. You can't do that, you know, but here we are handful of years later and it's people are getting these amazing cameras at a fraction of the cost and the cameras are just absolutely incredible and that's why everybody's images are getting exponentially better by the year um the camera technology is just booming yeah and so in part i think that's because the uh Neither the demand for for these cameras have gotten so great. Everybody has one in their phone now. People have uh, worked out how to manufacture these things in such a way that they can mm -hmm. do them cheaply or cheaper anyway, and in, in a lot of cases, and uh, uh, and so they've gotten a lot better and cheaper as time as time has gone on. Um, what is some of the uh, so now I, I, I take it from your initial statement on the wars part of it that everybody's now, all manufacturers are now trying to outdo each other in terms of numbers Resolution. of pixels. Yeah. And so uh, that's kind of what's happened. And, and things have switched. That's another reason that cameras have gotten less expensive. Everything kind of, the whole, the whole camera producing world chose CMOS as the option. And so all the tech, all the investment went into CMOS cameras and it brought the price way down, quality way up from all the innovation, price way down. And um, and that's the direction we've gone. You know, I was pretty resistant to it when it first, when I first got the news several years ago, because I really like CCD and I still do. I really like, um, you know, they're, they're dumb sensors in the sense that, you know, they, they, uh, they don't read out nearly as fast. And generally they're just like these big, uh, big photo sites on uh on these chips that that we were using at least like nine micron pixels and stuff like that but they made binning a lot easier and a few things that matter to astronomers and i just didn't see cmos having as bright a future as it you know people were projecting for um astronomy and i was wrong you know even the cameras like the 6200 zwo or the qhy 600 and other other manufacturers make the same camera or the same uh put the same chip in their cameras but um, they proved me wrong. I mean, people are taking images that are absolutely incredible because the quantum efficiency is so high. They're doing shorter exposure times. 
they're using these small pixels on very long focal lengths, which I wouldn't have said would have produced a good result, but it does. And um, taking these incredible images. But one of the things that people weren't anticipating, and especially because of the marketing that's happening with this, is how much data storage is now required, which was not an issue before when you were taking, you know, the best cameras were like 16 megapixels. And now when you're talking 60 is pretty common, or even, you know, some of these cameras are 150 megapixels. You think about how much data that is, and you start pushing single images up towards a terabyte of data after doing a lot of exposures with it. And it's just a single image with that much data becomes challenging for a lot of reasons, including storage, having a computer that can manage a file that large in a program like, you know, a PixInsight or a Photoshop, most of the time, those huge files would just crash, crash most computers if it doesn't set them on fire, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. Well, you're right. I mean, the way you would figure that out is you got a, you got a 60 megapixel camera, and if each pixel is, then you multiply that by the pixel depth. If it's 8 bits or 12 or 16 bits per pixel, you would take 60 and multiply it by one of those numbers, and that's just one image size. That's uh, one image. And, exactly. uh, and how many so, yeah, they can get it could get quite large quite quite quickly. I would I would also just I would have been wrong too about the CMOS thing because I the problem with CMOS as, as I understood it at the time was always noise. They were very mm -hmm. noisy chips and I don't the only time I can recall that the professionals ever used a CMOS camera was in an infrared prototype camera that was built to measure the solar corona and that was a CMOS only because Rockwell International, who built that camera specifically for this purpose, uh, used a CMOS readout uh, uh, in its pixel, in its camera design. So, And when they wanted super fast exposure times, you yes. know, for lucky imaging or something like that. that. Those were the only times that it was used. But, but yeah, I mean, they were noisy. Of, exactly. And, and it just didn't make much sense. But it's because we were judging CMOS for what it was, not for what it is and what it's becoming. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. and what it's becoming is incredible. So I really think it, it is the direction. It was the right choice. It just felt like the wrong choice to everybody at the time for good reason. Sure, but here sure. we are and we were all proven wrong. So, um, you know, and, and the other side is that the, a lot of the CCDs aren't available anymore. So even if you disagree, it's really challenging to find a lot of those old CCDs because most of them were discontinued. Um, including the one I use in, in my observatory. So it's challenging. Once that camera goes, it will be switched to CMOS out of necessity. So, um, <laughs> wow. you know, yeah. um, it's just, it's just the way the, the world has gone. So but, yeah. So, so what happens getting back to the point is that if you look at this and it happens on two, two different fronts, it happens in the consumer world and it happens, um, you know, with universities and people that have to go over after grant money and things like that. But like, let's take the university world, for instance. Um, I know you're, you're familiar with how the grants work. And so you make these proposals to people that aren't necessarily going to be doing the same type of science or research that you are. And so they have to look at this and measure it and measure its ability, measure, you know, how, how much this is going to bring to the community, to the science, to whatever it is that you're proposing. And so you have to put some, something in there that sells them on the idea. And with cameras, for people that don't necessarily spend their life using cameras or understand cameras, the piece that most people understand is resolution. They understand like, oh, well, this camera, if you tell most people this camera has 30 megapixels, this one has 60, the assumption is that 60 is better to most people, right? 
And it's not necessarily true, but that is the assumption. And so for marketing purposes on these things, a lot of times what happens is the higher resolution option ends up being what gets proposed. And because of that, it ends up being what gets produced. And so you see a lot of things going that direction. Same thing with consumer cameras. If you tell somebody that walks into a camera store, you can get this Fuji camera that's 16 megapixels or this one that's 24 and they're the same price, most people are going to buy the 24. Where in reality, for people that are shooting in low light, the one that's 16 would probably do a better job. I have a GFX 100 that's 100 megapixels. I have the same exact sensor size and GFX 50. And I've compared them side by side out in the middle of the night shooting Milky Way. And every Milky Way photo I have of that I ever post to Instagram or to Twitter or anything like that, they're all shot with the 50 because the 50 drastically outperforms the 100. And you see you this said with the, Sony the, as well. the two cameras have the same pixel sensor size. So that means sensor the, size. the pixels are bigger in the 50 megapixel. That's exactly it. So okay. you have however much real estate your sensor size is. Full frame is always going to be really close to the same size. Medium format, you know, you have a couple different levels of medium format, but um, in, in this, the uh, Fuji cameras, those two are going to be the same size. And so what happens is you have that much real estate. If you have bigger pixels, you can't fit as many on that same sensor size. So you have a lower resolution. But if you make the pixels smaller, you can fit more of them on that, that square or rectangle. And so you have higher resolution. But the sacrifice is the pixel size. And your pixels are your light buckets. They're what collects the light. So the bigger they are, you know, obviously the more they can collect in the same amount of time. And so um, that's kind of the, the trade-off in the issue. And you see Sony. Sony's you know, become legendary for a camera they call the A7S, right? But what that camera really did that was amazing, a, a few of, aside from a few innovations they did for like making sure it stayed cool and those sorts of things, was that they sacrificed resolution and they just didn't promote that that's what it was, but they kept a full frame sensor, just like what they were putting in their A7 and their A7R. But instead of going after the resolution like the A7R and all of those models, they went after pixel size. And then they market it as a low light camera. And it is because it's very, very sensitive and it has huge pixels. And so it can handle collecting a lot of light very quickly um, because, you know, it's got whatever it is. I don't know the exact megapixels, but it's very low. It's a small fraction of what like the A7R is. And um, that pixel size is a benefit, but it's not as marketable to if you if people don't understand the differences. And so that marketing is what's led the resolution war. It reminds me a lot of the magnification uh, wars back in the day, right? Oh, this telescope. Exactly. People would ask you, you, I just got a new telescope. The first thing they'd ask you is, well, what power is it? You know, it's a thousand power. <laughs> it's like, you just be able to say you had a thousand power telescope. Uh, it was not a good thing, but you, nonetheless, it was a big number. But it didn't matter. Say. For people that didn't know, the right. question to the people producing them is, which one will people buy? Mm -hmm. You know, because that's what's going to keep their company alive. And if one company is saying this one's a thousand and the next company is saying this one's 10,000, it doesn't matter Usability. that, you know, <laughs> that people don't, they, it's not going to work and it's not, yeah. they're just like, oh, well, this one's a bigger number. This is what I'm going to try, you know? And so, um, and I'm not, I don't, I don't mean to imply that consumers are dumb or anything like that. It's just, this is like a lot of this stuff you only know after you spend time doing it. And it's specialized knowledge that you get with time on task. You get by being involved in the hobby. Right. And that's and, the tragedy um, of it. The, the people who would yeah. buy into the 
resolution is king or magnification is king argument would are going to be disappointed when they get these things and find that they are it's not as useful as as you thought it was but what what does resolution get you dustin in a camera resolution yeah on target so when you're looking at your files you know you can you you see some files that you can blow up really big you could print on the side of a building and it still looks you could walk up right up next to it and you can see that it still looks really good it still looks high um, high quality, and you can see all the colors without seeing the individual dots, right? Um, with a low resolution, that wouldn't be the case. You would see the individual pixels as you got closer and closer to it. And so the higher resolution it is, the more you can crop into the image and still have the same quality in that image. And so that's what a lot of people have done is they've they've used that resolution to their advantage by shooting wide field and then cropping in because let's say for instance that I have a I have a 10 megapixel camera and you have a 100 megapixel camera well if we shoot if I'm shooting at a much longer focal length and I'm like real real zoomed in on a target um, and you're shooting at a wide field and you're not you can still throw away nine tenths of your image and have the same resolution that I do so you can crop way into your image, throw away the rest, and still have the same resolution. Um, you know there are sacrifices there by not having the magnification, so you're not going to get uh, quite as much detail in the target itself. But it's pretty pretty close, and so that's why a lot of people have just decided to shoot really wide on their images, and then they crop and they make multiple images out of that one image. And each one of those images is really high resolution because they're starting with such a high number of pixels. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And this this is just one element of so many of the things you need to keep in mind when you're trying to image because resolution is one part, but then you want to you don't just want to throw a lot of pixels at an object without also matching your optical system to it. There's this thing called pixel scale, which we won't get into right now, but you have to match the the, the resolution element of your sensor to your optical system so that you're not undersampling or oversampling. Otherwise you're 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 wasting your money. If you don't match the the pixel size, the resolution elements with your optical system on top of everything else, and then there's the mounts and everything else. Because if you, if you need a high, long focal length uh, telescope with high magnification, that's going to mean more better mounts. So there's, there's all this stuff that goes into a resolution is one part. Keep that in mind. I don't know. I kind of like my magnification comparison because... You do want magnification on a telescope, but you don't want too much because otherwise you're magnifying the atmosphere and everything else. You're not going to see anything. Right. You do just want resolution, but you don't want too much because now it's not matched to your system, Rob. That's right. So, Yeah, exactly. And that's what it's about is making sure that you're maximizing the benefit of the equipment you have. And so you can, you can do that if you match the two things together, but this is there are multiple variables in this equation. And that's why, you know, uh, generally when people ask like, well, how do I make sure that mine are matched? I always tell them the same thing. Call OPT. You know, this is what the, this is what the team does all day, every day. You know, people, people shop on our website without calling minute by minute basis. It's, that's not what the team is there for. They're there to answer those questions and to make sure that people are buying the right thing. So when people call, that's what they're there for. And um, chances so, are high yeah. you'll save money because you'll be exactly. not required to buy that high resolution t- uh, camera. Exactly. If you're going to, once you've matched it with your optical system that you're going to end up buying, you may save yourself money by yeah. doing it, by making that phone call. Definitely worth it. That's exactly right. And it's, it's really just about making sure that you get the right 
camera, the right telescope, the right optical system for what it is you're trying to do. Because people have different goals. They have, um, you know, different vision of what that, that perfect image they're trying to get is. And you're going to need a very different scope and a very different camera to get a great picture of Jupiter than you will to get a great picture of Andromeda. You're not going to do those two things with the same system. And that's why it's really important on the front end, if you don't know this stuff already, to talk to somebody who can can walk you through it. It's really not super complicated. It's just important. Um, or, you know, like I said, call the team and they'll, they'll walk you through it. They'll take the time and sit down with you and, and walk you through it to make sure that you're not buying the Jupiter camera system to try to get your deep space image of, you know, the whirlpool galaxy yeah. you're not going to be happy with because then you're wasting your money and that's not good for anybody that's right so all right well that's good advice keep resolution the cameras are getting better all the time uh, there's so many other things to keep in mind but uh but i just want to give a quick shout out to third rock astronomy who was show he said he just switched to mono he just got a mono camera and nice uh, he showed me some uh images on on discord of his ongoing work he said this is my apod he's taking uh, a several hundred hour image of the coma cluster and uh he's very happy with it. So i want to say keep going man that is a that is an epic project you're on so good and what's yeah, amazing to is. me is what amateurs are now doing uh with their equipment i i'm asking myself all the time didn't didn't Hubble take a picture of that? People are now doing what Hubble had done in the past from space. So uh, the hobby is exploding. It's getting better all the time. And uh, that's why we had to build James Webb Space Telescope. Because come on, you're catching up with NASA. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's, it's crazy. I see images all the time. I'm just like, this, this would have been impossible 10 years ago. Yeah. And then you look at it and it's like a kid... A kid took it. You're like, right, yes. right, right, from yes. the balcony, you know, right, yeah. <laughs> just right. off the shelf equipment. So, and right. another thing that's exciting to me is people doing, you know, exoplanet transit curves, things like that. It's just all this stuff. I don't know if the gap between professional and amateur is 10 years anymore. I think it's narrowed considerably. Anyway, we should do an episode on data processing at some point that's that's something that's also right. made a lot of advancement okay dustin thanks again man it's good to talk to you uh thanks for taking time out to be with us always so fun this is space junk podcast hi guys time now for listener feedback I have an email from Chris, who, when the subject matter of the email says, great show, I'm going to click on it. You can be sure of that. <laughs> sure, man, I could be bribed. Anyway, Chris, Chris writes, hi, Tony. Space Junk has been one of my favorite podcasts since I found it several months ago, and I wanted to let you know that I like the new format. Excellent. Thank you. I'm, I like it, too. I think it's working. I particularly enjoyed the Pro-Am collaboration show that you recently dropped. The historical background was of great interest to me and dovetailed brilliantly with the BBC and Our Times podcast episode on the Herschels, which came up in my feed before Space Junk. The guest pointed out that, though William and Caroline wound up at the pinnacle of professional astronomy working out of Windsor Castle, prior to his discovery of Uranus, William was part of that gentleman naturalist movement at a time when the pros were focused almost exclusively on navigational uses of astronomy. 
His superior handcrafted mirrors enabled him to not so much collaborate with the pros, but rather to blow right past them, redefining the science with the help of his kid sister. Yes, really, really good point. Um, <laughs> the work, and I would, I, I keep mentioning Percival Lowell here because he did something similar in Arizona much later uh, than the Herschels. But this was the, the history of astronomy, especially amateur astronomy is, is filled with stories like this, where the contributions were coming from just people in their backyards, people who were interested uh, and wanted to find these things out. Professional astronomy didn't really, I don't think crystallized into what we recognize as astronomers until well into the 20th century, probably after Hubble did his work in the, in, on the Palomar telescope. So it's a relatively new phenomenon what we have going on here with professional astronomers. And like I said in that episode, you know, we've diverged in the early 20th century because the knowledge required to make any progress and, and the equipment required was much different than it is now. But William Herschel was a um, really, actually the Herschels, I should but you point out, Caroline, rightly so, uh, was uh, working with him on that. And um, it's a really good example of how amateurs have contributed to our knowledge of the cosmos. So thank you, Chris, for writing. I hope you guys will write as well. That is it for this episode. Write to us at spacejunk at deepastronomy.com. I am there reading your emails. And I will be back next week. As long as you keep listening. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here and joining me. On behalf of Dustin Gibson, thank you all for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.